You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Well, the best way to start a sermon is with prayer, so let's do that. Father in heaven, we come to you with this confession today. Where else can we go, O Lord? Where else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Holy Spirit, we pray to you as God Almighty that you might prepare our hearts, help us to receive and break the hard and stony ground of our hearts. We ask that you might do a mighty work this morning, one thing that only you can do, and that is showing us Christ. Would you captivate us with the glory of Jesus? Plant your word and your truth in the very marrow of our beings and cause it to bear fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, River City. As Devin said, my name is Joshua Molden, and I'm a member here. I'm a part of the Wait Community Group, and this morning I get the privilege of preaching the Word of God to you. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can start turning to Luke 21. Um, If you don't have a Bible, members of our strike team will be coming down the aisle. You can raise your hand, and they'll get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, this is the church's gift to you today, and it truly is a gift. As you are turning to Luke 21, I just want to kind of remind us of where we're at in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We've been preaching uh, through Luke kind of as our spring series, and we've been doing this for over three to four years now in the spring. Um, Luke's Gospel primarily progresses based on Jesus' geographical location. So, The first thing Luke does is he kind of gives us a prelude to Jesus' ministry in the first four chapters, and then he shows Jesus ministering in Galilee, journeying to Jerusalem, and finally completing his work in Jerusalem. And just to give you a little bit of a geographical picture of what this could have looked like, that red line, maybe harder to see in the back, was a possible route Jesus may have taken, and that's where he would have possibly ministered in Galilee and on his way to Jerusalem. This final section of ours starts in Luke chapter 19, verse 45. From the time of his entry into Jerusalem until his resurrection, Jesus experiences nothing but confrontation from the religious leaders. The first thing he does when he gets into Jerusalem is he cleanses the temple as an a sign of judgment upon the religious leaders. Then, in chapter 20, the religious leaders challenge his authority. They try to trap him in their theological and political questions of the day. But Jesus pronounces his judgment upon them for rejecting his authority. He even predicts that they will follow in the footsteps of their fathers and kill the prophet of God, referring to himself. Jesus then proclaims that 
he is the Lord of David and the Messiah prophesied about. This is something Jake preached on last week. And chapter 20 ends with Jesus warning his disciples in a public gathering to beware of the pride and the corruption of the religious leaders. Thus, when we find ourselves in our passage today, Luke 21, everything that precedes it are matters in which Jesus is in confrontation. Understanding this context helps us see what Luke is doing through this story of Jesus. Luke is contrasting the humility, the piety, and the generosity of a poor widow with the pride, the piety, and the stinginess of the religious and rich leaders of the day. So let us read our passage with that in mind. Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of God for us this morning. Now, you may have heard Jake mention this from the podium before. When you talk about money, things get weird. (laughs) And I hope you came ready to get weird today because we're going to be talking about money. But to be honest, I think one of the reasons why it can be weird to talk about money for us is because how we spend it gives us one of the clearest pictures of what's ruling in our hearts, similar to how if we were to look at how you spent your time or what you thought of, what consumed your thoughts, or even your phone usage, these things too can give us a clear picture of what is ruling in your heart. I also just wanted to say something quick before we get started. Um, This passage is focused on giving, specifically financial giving. But financial giving isn't the only way you can give. You can give your time and your talents away as well to help others. But because this text focuses on financial giving, that's what we're going to focus on here today as well. And another thing... I do find this text somewhat providential for us as a local body of Christ. We are currently fundraising to do a remodel of our upstairs here at the church. Now for myself, the process that my wife and I have gone through in deciding what we're going to give has been one filled with confusion, sin, and closed-fistedness with our money mixed along with that of joy and willingness and excitement (laughs) to what God might do. I can only imagine that maybe some of you members and regular attenders are wrestling with the same things. And for those who are maybe visiting today, you too have likely had times in your life when you were trying to decide who you were going to give your money to and how much. In our passage, 
Jesus explicitly says that the poor widow gave more than the rich in her poverty because she gave all she had to live on. This got me thinking, and maybe you as well, is my giving less than the giving of this poor widow simply because she gave all she had to live on? I know I've never willingly given 100% of my money away, and I'm guessing no one here has either. I think this text elicits the question for us, what makes your giving good? I would like to propose today that your giving is good when it proceeds from a heart eager and ready to give. Thus, we should give bountifully, be eager to give, and third, look to Christ. This brings us to our first point, give bountifully. At the beginning of our text, we're told that Jesus looks up and he sees rich putting their gifts into an offering box. If we look at a parallel account of this in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, we learn that Jesus saw many rich putting in large sums. In contrast to these many rich putting in large sums, Jesus sees a or one poor widow putting in two small copper coins. That's just another way of saying she did not put in a large sum like the rich did. Luke is setting the scene for us in these first two verses. This event likely occurred the Wednesday, two days before Jesus was crucified. Since arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus has almost had a fixation on the temple We saw at the end of chapter 19 in Luke, the first thing he does is cleanse the temple, and then all throughout chapter 20, we see him teaching in the temple as well. I think I have a picture up here of what, this is called the temple courts, and kind of on the south side of this, you see the entry, and there's just kind of a big open space there with kind of four large pillars in it. That's likely where Jesus would have been in our passage. According to the Mishnah, which is just a body of oral teachings gathered around 200 AD uh, of kind of Jewish practices, in this space there would have been 13 kind of trumpet-shaped receptacles where people would have given their offerings including the poor widow today. Now, Jesus sees many rich putting in large amounts, but what captures his attention is a poor widow who puts in two small copper coins. One of these copper coins is called a lepta. Um, It was the smallest currency available in that day and age, kind of like our penny. By putting in two of these, the poor widow was putting in a meal, meal, one one-hundredth of a daily wage. So you guys can go home and do the math for yourself. It's not very much. Now, I give this kind of historical and cultural background information so that we might see what's going on in this passage is not so different from what we're doing here today. 
This event was happening in a public gathering similar to what we're doing here today. And in this public gathering, we don't have our boxes out, but we usually have uh, some, some baskets out that you, if you're giving later today, people will be able to see you give, similar to what was happening in this story as well. Now, one thing that stood out to me about this passage is that Jesus publicly commends the poor widow for the amount she gave. Jesus doesn't explicitly commend her heart posture while she gave. He doesn't even highlight a smile that might have been on her face while she was giving. Jesus just says the poor widow gave more because out of her poverty, she gave all she had to live on. This was striking to me, and I hope it's striking to you as well. Is Jesus really teaching us that what makes this poor widow's giving good or our giving good is the amount we give proportional to what we own? The poor widow gave 100% of her money away. And in our passage, the rich gave large sums, but they did not give 100% of their money away. Well, I'm confident that Jesus is not teaching us this. And here's why. We ought to remember that when we interpret Scripture, we should not do it in isolation from its immediate context. The verses that immediately precede ours here today are ones in which Jesus publicly rebukes the religious leaders. He tells the listening crowd not to follow their example. In our passage, Luke 21, Jesus doesn't necessarily rebuke the rich, but he does use them as a contrasting example to the poor widow. I think this is key to helping us see what exactly this passage is saying. Specifically, I think Luke, through the words of Jesus, is contrasting the rich or the religious leaders with a poor widow. And he's trying to show us whose example should we follow. Yet, in my effort to guard ourselves from more of a legalistic view of what makes our giving good, I don't want us to miss out on the fact that Jesus is publicly commending this poor widow for the amount she gave. Neither here nor in any other passage of Scripture are we ever commanded to give away everything we own. But do you have the same willingness to do so as this poor widow? If what we have here on earth is truly not coming with us to heaven, and why hold on to it? There is wisdom in the action of this poor widow. Even if our watching world and our own greedy hearts squirm as we consider such a possibility, the wisdom of this poor widow is not specifically in her act of giving all she had, but in her willingness to do so. 
Again, I'm not urging or calling anyone today to give away everything you own. Please don't hear that from me. But dear Christians, I do exhort you and myself to give bountifully. The Bible and the New Testament assume that God's people are those who give money away. The New Testament never exempts us from giving. I would say it just more clearly highlights and shows us that the emphasis is not on the amount we give, but the heart posture that we give with. I want to end this point with a couple of application questions. These are ones that I have been wrestling with really this whole past semester of River City Institute, and they have not been easy to grapple with. Uh, Even me and my wife have talked about these things. So first, are you willing to push back moving into a house or doing remodels on your house if it allows you to give more abundantly? Second, are you willing to give up purchasing a highly desired item and instead give that money away? For me, that might look like not buying new golf clubs or new books. What might it be for you? Third, are you searching for ways to budget your money so that you can maximize the money you're able to give away, both for present needs right now and large scale over your whole life. Ouch. (laughs) These questions are hard, but I think they're ones we ought to grapple with more often. But let me restate the big point so we don't get lost. Your giving is good when it proceeds from a heart eager and ready to give. Thankfully, the scriptures don't primarily focus on the amount we give. Instead, they look to our heart posture while we give. And this takes us to our second point. Be eager to give. Now, as I stated earlier, One thing that struck me about this text is that Jesus never explicitly says anything about the poor widow's heart posture. If this were the only text in Scripture that we can learn about giving from, I think we could rightfully deduce that we as Christians are called to give everything away. But this is not the only passage in Scripture that talks about giving And I wouldn't even say it's the most explicit teaching. For that, I think we could turn to 2 Corinthians and hear from the Apostle Paul, who does give some explicit teaching on giving. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, we learn that one of the reasons Paul wrote to the Corinthians was to encourage them to give money to some Christians who were in need in Jerusalem. So in a different town, really. There's much said in these two chapters about what our heart posture should be while we're giving. And I'm not going to go into detail of all of it. It would honestly be a great read for you later today, if you're curious. 
I just kind of want to highlight two passages from these two chapters because I think they really bring out what Paul, at the, it brings out the heart of what Paul is trying to say about what our heart posture should be when we give money. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, Paul says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. In its context, I would say Paul is tactically encouraging the Corinthians to give to the Christians in need in Jerusalem. But Paul does not say that the Corinthians' giving is acceptable because of the amount they give. Instead, he highlights that it is acceptable if there is readiness. The second verse just comes a chapter later in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Here Paul says, Each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, did you notice something about these two passages? The type of giving that is acceptable and pleasing to God has nothing to do with the amount given. And in some sense, I think we should all be thankful for this. Praise God that he is gracious to allow us to have an abundance. He doesn't require us to give everything away. Yet, in another sense, wouldn't it be nice to be able to know for certain, regardless of our heart posture, that if we gave X amount we would be pleasing God. Even if it was everything we had to live on. I think in some sense, we're actually left more helpless and more dependent on God when he requires a cheerful giver, one who is eager and ready to give to the Lord. God cares more about your heart posture as you give, not so much the amount. Specifically, he wants us and even commands us to have a heart that is willing, that is ready and eager to give, not a heart that is reluctant and giving under compulsion. I want to end this point again with some application questions for you. These are also ones that I've been wrestling with. First, when there is an opportunity to give to the advancement of the gospel, do you find yourself eager to give? Second, are you more fixated on the amount you give rather than your heart posture while giving. Your giving is good when it proceeds from a heart eager and ready to give. So far, when considering what makes our giving good, we've looked at ourselves. 
I think this is usually how we start when we're trying to figure out what really makes any of our actions good, including giving. But I believe these first two points are truly peripheral matters. Though our part in giving is important, and we should never neglect looking introspectively, I believe we fail most often because we look introspectively first. What ultimately makes your giving good is whom your eyes are fixated on. This leads us to our third and final point for today. Look to Christ. Now, I'm guessing if we have any parents in the room or those who serve in children's ministry, if you were to ask a child what makes your giving good or any action good, and they said, because of Jesus, (laughs) you'd probably be asking for a little bit more of an answer. And so would I, just so you know. (laughs) So what makes this point more than just a good church answer? Well, I believe it is because there's a profound reality and a glorious gospel truth that truly fills out this answer for us. When we read the Old Testament, or when you read it, especially Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we notice that one of the major parts of what it meant for God's people to worship Him in the Old Testament was through offering sacrifices. That could be done through the offering of an animal to be slain for them, the giving of grain, or even the giving of money. In the Old Testament, there's kind of five main groups of offerings, and I'm not going to get into the details. The main point that I want to highlight with these five main groups is that they were all commanded by God to be done. It was a part of worship for the Israelites for the purpose of promoting inward holiness. Just so you know the names, uh, you don't need to remember these, but I'm going to contrast this in a second. The first one was a burnt offering. The second is a grain offering. The third is a peace offering. The fourth is a sin offering. And the fifth, a guilt offering. But... If you read the Old Testament carefully, you're going to see another offering talked about. And this one is called the free will offering. This offering is different from the other five groups that I mentioned because it's not required of the Israelites to be given. Instead, as the Lord moved in the hearts of his people, they were to give to him out of their own free will, out of a response to what God had done for them. The first explicit reference to the free will offering in Scripture comes from Exodus 35. We read specifically Exodus 35, 10 through 29, and we read kind of the latter half of that section for our Scripture reading today. Uh, I'm going to get to the last verse. I'm going to highlight that last verse. But first, let me just give a little bit of context to where we're kind of at in Exodus when we get to Exodus 35. The first book of Genesis 
starts from and covers a time span from eternity past up until the time of Joseph. That's a large chunk of time. Exodus 1 through 18 covers, it really focuses on kind of an 80-year time span of when the Israelites were under the oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt and God's deliverance of the uh, Israelites from the Egyptian oppression. Then, from Exodus 19 through Numbers 10, which is pretty much three books of the Bible, the Israelites are at the base of Mount Sinai receiving commandments from God. The time span covered from Exodus 19 to Numbers 10 is one year. So we started with covering basically an infinite, infinite time span from Genesis to 80 years to one year. Moses, the author of these books, is using a rhetorical device called a narrative focus. Moses is kind of slowing down, covering a smaller chunk of time with more text in order to show us the importance of what is going on, including what's going on in chapter 35. Starting in Exodus 19, the Israelites are presiding at the base of Mount Sinai while Moses is receiving commands from God. These commands he receives are kind of shown to us in Exodus 20 through chapter 30. He gives commands on how to build a tabernacle, uh, specifically in Exodus 25 through 30, but he does not give commands on where the materials should come from for this tabernacle. In Exodus 31 through 34, Moses tells us about the golden calf incident where the Israelites bow down before a golden calf and worship it. And it also highlights the recreation of the Ten Commandments on new stone tablets. After Moses descends from the mountain with a shining face, we find ourselves in Exodus 35. Again, we read some of this, the latter half of this portion. There was a bunch of people bringing precious stones, different colors of yarn, goat's hair, all these different things. In Exodus 35, 29, Moses tells us this. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. When the Israelites were bringing these free will offerings, it was not in obedience to a command. Instead, it was given in response to the goodness and the mercy of God. Based on how Moses structures Exodus, I believe he's showing us that the Israelites understood their sin of the golden calf incident. And they were willing to give so generously because the Lord had spared them from the wrath they knew they justly deserved. 
Now, our text in Luke 21, again, it doesn't tell us what motivated the poor widow. It doesn't tell us her heart posture while she gave. So I don't want to speculate too much on that. But it is very likely that this poor widow was offering a free will offering that day. And it was maybe even being offered in response to God's provision for her and possibly an understanding of the mercy he had extended her. Whether or not this is so, are you beginning to see why looking to Christ is the only way your giving can be good? Our Father in heaven was unfathomably merciful to you and I, and even is today, forbearing with us in our sins while we were dead in our sins. He was so merciful that he sent his one and his only son for our sake. But Jesus didn't just come reluctantly. Jesus stepped down from heaven willingly and freely in order to offer himself on your behalf. As Paul states in 2 Corinthians 8-9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ, being God from eternity past, emptied himself by taking on human flesh. Jesus, who was infinite, took on that which was finite, our human body, so that we might inherit eternity with him. What a glorious Savior we have. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is the perfect free will offering to God on our behalf. Every man owes God a debt due to their sin, including you and myself. Our sin is so heinous and wicked that the debt required of us is of infinite value. Jesus, knowing this, freely and willingly came to earth for the purpose of paying off your debt with his body. He did not come with precious stones, with different colored yarn, with an animal, or with money. Jesus gave the only thing of infinite value in all of creation, his very own body. Without faith in the free will offering of Jesus, all of our offerings remain stained by sin. But now, having been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, no matter if you give one penny or all that you have to live on, 
it is made acceptable and pleasing to God. The gospel truly is our hope in every single sphere of life, including in what we give. Your giving is good when it proceeds from a heart eager and ready to give. Do you see how it is now possible to create a willingness and eagerness within our hearts? To conclude, this morning, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've taken you on somewhat of a journey, starting with focusing on what we give, then how we give, and why we give. I've structured those main points with purpose. Usually when we think of what makes any action of ours good, we start with what we do kind of externally with our hands. In this case, we focus on the amount we give or maybe how many hours we've served somewhere. Maybe how many times we've helped grandma across the street. (laughs) Then, when we fail at proving the goodness of our own actions, we turn inward to our motives, trying to parse out, wow, was I devoted to God in this or was I not? And what we find is that it's tainted by pride and sin almost every single time. All the while, while we're trying to look to ourselves to figure out what makes any act of ours good, we know there is nothing within ourselves that is able to please God. This only leads to one place, or specifically one person, Jesus of Nazareth. Our natural bend is to see things in the wrong order. In a very real sense, my first and my third point should replace one another. When you are considering what makes your giving good or really any action of yours, I pray that your first inclination is that of looking to Christ. He is not only given all that he had to live on, he gave his whole being This poor widow points us to another, even to the one who is speaking about her in our passage today. He was just days away from providing the most glorious gift and offering that could ever be given in all of human history. This Christ's sacrifice, in turn, should fill us with an unexplainable joy. Your hearts can only be ready and eager to give when you recognize that Jesus, from eternity past, was ready and eager to give himself for you. The foundation for what makes your giving good is being enamored and consumed with what Christ has given for you. Faith in Christ expressed in an eagerness to give abundantly. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your spirit to be with us today. Lord, we pray that you might reform our hearts and our minds, even when it comes to giving. Lord, we need to have our eyes fixated on Christ. Lord, I confess that my eyes are often not. I often wonder how much percentage-wise are we giving already. That's good enough. Lord, we ask that you might, I ask that you might forgive me for those wrong focuses, looking to myself instead of Christ. Holy Spirit, would you drive the truth of the glory of Christ and his offering on our behalf into the very marrow of our beings? May that be both the fuel and the engine for why we give in response to your grace and mercy shown to us. And may that fuel the amount we give as well. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.